Welcome to The Rock Podcast. In this study, we wrap up the book of 1 Kings by taking a closer look at an inspiring story from the life of King Jehoshaphat recorded for us in 2 Chronicles. Now let's listen in as Pastor Ross brings a message entitled, The Battle is Not Yours. Alrighty, good evening everybody. It is good to see you. Why don't you turn with me in your Bibles? To 1 Kings chapter 22, the very last chapter of the book. We're almost done. We just left a dangling paragraph there. And uh, so we're going to take a look at that tonight, uh, not before asking the Lord for his blessing. So let's do that. All right. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your presence here by your wonderful Holy Spirit. We ask Father God for help. We just admit, Lord, that we're, we can be pretty dull at times, and at the end of a long, hard day, we're tired, and we just need the Holy Spirit to open the eyes of our hearts, to see the wonderful things you have in your word for us, even tonight. You've ordained everybody to be here at this moment for a reason, because you have good plans for us, you have something to say. So help us to catch it, Lord, and not to miss it, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So tonight, as I was mentioning, we finish up uh, 1 Kings here in chapter 22. uh, That ends really with the death of uh, wicked King Ahab. And if you missed it last night, uh, last time I should say, uh, it was quite uh, an ordeal. A random arrow by a random archer fulfilling a longtime prophecy, or I should say prophecies, of how King Ahab would die. But now that we finished up his life and death, uh, in keeping with the literary style of 1 Kings, going from the northern kingdom of Israel to the southern kingdom, back and forth, uh, that's what the writer does now in um, going from the north to the south. And now there's going to be a brief summary in the remaining couple paragraphs now of King Jehoshaphat, uh, who is reigning in the south, and he reigned during the same time as uh, King Ahab. Now, I have a quick map there for you, and so uh, essentially, you'll remember that the kingdom has been divided for about 100 years since Solomon, so 100 years have passed since we were at the time of Solomon, and now we've had the death of King Ahab and that whole ordeal Uh, And now his son, uh, King Ahaziah, is going to reign in his place. And tonight we're just switching back from the north back to the south where the king of Judah now is King uh, Jehoshaphat. And so uh, tonight we're going to take a a look at that. But before we leave, we're going to look at the the last couple paragraphs of uh, chapter 22. Uh, But what I want to do is not go into 2 Kings until we cover a story that's not included in 1 Kings about King Jehoshaphat. We just get a paragraph in 1 Kings. 
But Jehoshaphat had a lot of things going on, and a very inspiring story is waiting for us in Second Chronicles chapter 20. So I would like to just skip tonight the, the paragraphs and go straight to that story, but uh, then we, we didn't go through the whole book of First King. So we have to take care of those paragraphs, and then we're going to jump over to the one incident there that's very inspiring. I think you'll like it very much. Uh, okay, picking up in verse 40 then, after the death of King Ahab, uh, verse 40, Ahab rested with his fathers, he died, and Ahaziah, his son, succeeded him as king. Jehoshaphat, son of Asa, good King Asa, uh, became king of Judah in the fourth year of Ahab, king of Israel. So they were... Uh, uh, they were working together, really, for uh, reigning together, I should say, for about 17 years. Uh, verse 42, Jehoshaphat was 35 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 25 years. His mother's name was Azubah, daughter of uh, Shehai. In everything, he walked in the ways of his father Asa and did not stray from them. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. The high places, however, were not removed, and the people continued to offer sacrifices and burn incense there. Jehoshaphat was also at peace with the king of Israel. All right, let's pause there, talk about this. Now, uh, summaries, these fast, quick summaries of these kings are kind of like report cards. You know, and so uh, overall, his report card comes out and he gets an A uh, overall, King Jehoshaphat. Now, that's really encouraging to me, and it speaks of the beauty of grace, uh, because you can get an A with God and not be perfect. Uh, you're going to see, uh, amen? <laughs> I thought that might cheer somebody up here. <laughs> Uh, because that is the beauty of the gospel. It is a righteousness that is revealed in the gospel that is of faith, that by, entrusting, by trusting Jesus, we are made uh, perfect in his sight. And so um, we're going to take a look at this, and, and it's funny because it points out right here some of the missteps of Jehoshaphat. Uh, so the benefits of grace, trusting God, Walking with God. The point is, is that he walked with God. Uh, and he walked in the way of his father, who left him a good example, King Asa. And so I was thinking of Psalm 32, where it says, Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit is no deceit. The grace of God allows us to be known for the bent of our lives, not for our biggest mistakes. It's a wonderful thing to be able to look at this and hear him praise, really, uh, the life of Jehoshaphat, and we know that he, he was not perfect, and those shortcomings are listed here uh, in verse 43. He never got to the high places. He, he had unfinished business, and don't most of us. It's refreshing to know that uh, the high places didn't get finished. He, he died with, with still work to do, and that's kind of uh, something that we can all 
relate to. He stops short of a full purge of idolatry. Those high places were places where Israel would, on occasion, worship uh, idols and, and false gods. He could have done more. Uh, he didn't reach as high as he could have, uh, but he's going to get an A even with that unfinished business because of the grace of God. Now, Paul the Apostle would argue that, I, and by the Holy Spirit, I might add, to get to those high places in your life and to tear them down and receive the reward. Yes, of course, we're all going to get there by grace, and we stand there completed in Christ by the blood of Jesus, completely right, 100%, but there's reward issues. There are reward issues. And so from Paul's point of view, that uh, leaving the high places when God expected you to get those and enabled you and wanted you to get to those, you know, not in a condemning way. It doesn't matter uh, so much. I'm not talking about salvation. But I'm, now I'm talking about reward. Uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, uh, the fire will test the quality of our work. And so if your work survives, uh, you receive a reward, but surely there will be forfeited reward for unleft high places. And so rather than get encouraged to think, you know what, I can still get an A and not get the high places, uh, I think the New Testament would, would come down on the side of running the race to win the prize, as uh, Paul will say in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 20. Run your race in such a way to get the prize. So go ahead and get those high places taken care of, and uh, you won't regret it. Also, he, he throws in in verse 44, he says, he also was on good terms with the wicked king Ahab, meaning also there, this is a bad thing. All right. He left the high places and he also was on good terms with the wicked men. Now, you know, how can you be at peace with a man who's at war with God? I, I mean, bad company corrupts good morals, 1 Corinthians 15.33. And so it's sort of a big mistake. What happened in the South, King Jehoshaphat said, hey, why can't we be friends, you know? And uh, let's bring some peace. We're brothers. And he tried to unite the south with the north again at any cost. The problem is, is that uh, he was compromised and it almost cost him his life. Uh, so, you know, that's a big mistake many good-hearted people make. Um, they make an alliance, try to make peace with an immoral or sinning person. Uh, there's a fine line between being friendly and warm to win a sinner and uh, the heart alliance that begins to corrode your own sense of right and wrong. And that's what happened to good-hearted Jehoshaphat. Uh, he said, let's have peace between Judah and Israel, right? And he allowed his boy, Jehoram, to marry Ahab and Jezebel's daughter and to make a treaty. Athaliah is Jezebel Jr., and they, she married King Jehoshaphat's boy. And King Jehoshaphat's boy is going to be evil as a result. So Asa was a good king in the south. His son Jehoshaphat was a good king. And then Jehoshaphat wanted to make peace with Ahab. And so he married his son to their daughter. And the son goes back. 
So it's something to uh, take to uh, heart. Now, uh, I think we all need to watch our hearts uh, with our peace treaties with immoral friends and family. You know, it cost Jehoshaphat, uh, who walked in the counsel of the wicked and stood in the way of sinners and sat in the seat of mockers, it almost cost him his life. Remember, he got sucked into this battle. Uh, Micaiah, the prophet of the Lord, warned Jehoshaphat, who said, hey, King Ahab, we need to seek the Lord for his counsel on whether or not we should go to war with Syria. And Micaiah said, It's a disaster if you do it. And he ended up doing it. And then out of his good heart, he wears the royal robes, you'll remember. And King Ahab went into the battle disguised. And so here's his partnership, his good heartedness. I'm reaching out to King Ahab to make peace, but the lines got blurred. So when you find your treaty with somebody who's immoral, that perhaps you're trying to win to the Lord or whatever it is that's going on in that relationship. When you find that the lines are blurred a little bit and you start to have a little bit of a compromise, then it's time to uh, create the boundary again and uh, let the Holy Spirit give you guidance in that way. 45 through 50, as for the other events of Jehoshaphat's reign, the things he achieved in his military exploits, are they not written in the book of the annals of the king, kings of Judah? He rid the land of the rest of the male shrine prostitutes who remained there even after the reign of his father Asa. There was then no king in Edom, a deputy ruled. Now Jehoshaphat built a fleet of trading ships to go to Ophir for gold, but they never set sail. They were wrecked at Ezion Geber. At that time, Ahaziah, son of Ahab, said to Jehoshaphat, let my men sail with your men. But Jehoshaphat refused. Then Jehoshaphat rested with his fathers and was buried with them in the city of David. His father and Jehoram, his son, succeeded him. And so now a couple other details, good and bad. Uh, A good step here, verse 46, he got rid of all the detestable male shrine prostitutes uh, that even his good king father could not manage to do. So that's awesome. The bad step here, you need a little bit more information from Chronicles to make sense, sense about the fleets and all of that. So here I have a map first. Now, what's happening here is, is that this is the port here. Easy, um, the word is, the, the name is Ezion. Where, where is it there? Thank you. There it is. There's the port. All right. So they, the reason you hear about the king, there was no king in Edom, is because Israel was in control. And so Israel could, was occupying that city port so they could build ships. And so uh, what happened here is, is that after Ahab died, Jehoshaphat entered into a commercial venture, uh, trading ships looking for gold with Ahab's son. All right? And so what they did was together with Ahab's son, uh, Jehoshaphat 
built ships with him in a joint venture to go down to Ophir down here along the coast of Africa to get this prized gold that Solomon back a hundred years before had sent ships and brought back remember all kinds of things like baboons and ivory and all these things uh, and gold and the land was known for gold. Well what happened was is that he built the ships, Jehoshaphat made an alliance with Ahab's son and the Lord allowed the ships to be wrecked in port before they ever set sail. And then in your text, it says, then the son of Ahab asks Jehoshaphat, will, you, will your men join me again? And he's learned his lesson. And he says, no, I'm not going to do that. So this little... Uh, Uh, vignette is in there to let you know that uh, Jehoshaphat entered into kind of an unholy alliance and that Jehoshaphat has been struggling with this kind of blurred where he glosses over the evil in somebody and trying to make peace and ignoring that and trying to be buddy-buddy and when he's trying to be buddy-buddy like that he loses and he's had a lifelong struggle with that and so where to find that line and it's a hard Line. We're supposed to be friends to sinners and to try to win people. But there's that uh, problem, and he had that problem. And that's why this is in here. So now on a happy note, really, uh, the Lord did not allow those ships to sail. You know, there's all this promise, let's go together, and we're going to go find gold in the land of Ophir. And uh, thank God that he, he doesn't allow some of our our, our boats to set sail to go find whatever it is we're looking for. Amen. And so the Lord was uh, really uh, merciful to Jehoshaphat and Jehoshaphat is tested uh, again. He says, hey man, let's do this again. And Jehoshaphat says, no deal. <laughs> and so now there's just, let's close out the book of 1 Kings here. Ahaziah, son of Ahab, verse 51, became king in Israel in Samaria in the 17th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and he reigned over Israel two years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord because he walked in the ways of his father and mother, Jezebel, and in the ways of Jeroboam, a hundred years back, son of Nebat, who caused Israel to sin. He served and worshiped Baal and provoked the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger just as his father had done. So we wrap up 1 Kings by saying, like father, like son, and like mother. You never hear that, ever. You always hear that he committed and walked in the sins of his father. You never hear of his father and mother, only for Jezebel's sake there. And so what a sad statement. What a sad statement to say that parents are somewhat responsible for nurturing their child to hate the Lord and to reject his ways. I don't think there's anything sadder. It's a shout out to look what his parents did to him, setting him up. Of course, the son has to choose, right? He's responsible for his own life. But the Bible gives a shout out to the mother and father in a, in a negative way. And then also a hundred years shout out backwards to the guy 
who from Solomon, picked up from Solomon, and it was the first bad king of the north. The Lord is crediting back. The whole bunch of them went bad. And he's saying, it's really the guy who started this whole thing. He walked in his ways. And so really, it's really kind of scary to know that your bad choices can still hurt people a hundred years from now. A century later, the Bible is saying he walked in the ways of this guy back here. He, he set a trajectory away from the things of the Lord, and people followed generation after generation. And so that's a, a sad thing. Now, uh, it says that he, he reigns two years, uh, not like 22 years like his dad, but two years, and it's a fulfillment of prophecy that he would have a short reign and a really nasty death. And oh, we get to get the details of that death next time because it's in 2 Kings chapter 1. So we're going to find out how exactly he died. Uh, and so before we leave 1 Kings now, so we're done with 1 Kings, right? But no worries. You know why? Because 1 Kings and 2 Kings was one book in Hebrew originally. And so the story's just going on. But it's kind of nice to say, hey, we just finished 1 Kings. Now, before we go to 2 Kings, because we don't want to leave Jehoshaphat's life without getting this beautiful incident that will inspire us tonight. So go ahead and turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 20. 2 Chronicles chapter 20, and we'll start walking our way through a great uh, incident here. All right, I hear the pages stopping, so we'll start. One through four. After this, the Moabites and the Ammonites, with some of the Meunites, came to make war on Jehoshaphat. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, a vast army is coming against you from Edom, from the other side of the sea. It's already in Engedi. Alarmed, Jehoshaphat resolved to inquire of the Lord, and he proclaimed a fast for all Judah. The people of Judah came together to seek help from the Lord. Indeed, they came from every town in Judah to seek him. All right, so if you're taking notes, there are going to be five Ps, all right? The provocation, all right? The provocation. So the verse starts out with after this. So let's get context. Actually, it's not far after. Uh, on, it's on the heels of the war that just happened, the battle with Syria uh, that uh, Jehoshaphat partnered with Ahab and almost died. So after he almost died in that unwise choice to go into that battle, he got right with God. And that's after that. After getting right with God, after that wrong battle, now uh, he gets word, you may have survived that battle with Syria, but now a vast army is coming against you. And that's the context, context here. Now, Jehoshaphat is alarmed, as he should be, and he does what all believers should do when we're under attack or overwhelmed. He seeks God. So... Uh, I personally, and I'm going to watch my words here, I, I, I like 
when I'm overwhelmed in the sense that I have no other options but to turn to the Lord. I, I like when my options are limited when it's so far over my head that there's only one solution. And so this is kind of the situation here. I have a map of the, uh, who's coming against him here. And so Jehoshaphat's in Judah, all right? He's reigning here. He gets word, hey, king, these guys, these guys, and these guys are coming up this way. They're all coming from across the sea, all right? So they're coming around this way and up, and they're already at En Gedi. En Gedi's right about here. So they're already here. So quite a large army. I just want to say this, that in Psalm 83 and Ezekiel 37 and 38, there is a very similar prophecy for the end times. And I have a map. To, not only are these people named, this is Jordan and Egypt. Not, not only are these people named in the prophecy of the end times that will come against Israel, but all around Israel. And so let me just show you the second. Psalm 83, these are, are all named as coming against Israel and God takes care of them. So in the end times, uh, here, here we are with, with what just is going on in Second Chronicles 20 down through here, all right? But then in the prophetic word that comes at the end, it's, a, it's everybody. Everyone just goes after Israel. Psalm 83, Ezekiel 37 and 38. And it's the beginning of the end when that happens. All right, I just throw that in to cheer you all up. <laughs> all right. So here we go. So thank you for that map. So yeah, that's good. You can keep that on there. So he fasting. Some things, uh, some things are more important than uh, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And apparently when he gets word that these nations are coming as a co- coalition against him, he decides, you know what, Judah, uh, let's put away the food. Let's seek the Lord because our lives are on the line, and so a proclamation goes out. Uh, let's seek help from the Lord, and there's a great turnout, and they fast. Now, uh, the Lord didn't ask them to fast, but this is pretty important. Fasting in the Bible in the Old Testament, they generally would take one day and drink water and seek the Lord. And the word to seek the Lord for His help there means to worship Him and to find out what He wants. That's the idea that they're doing here, and so they've. Uh, Mark chapter 9 and verses 28 and 29 uh, definitely show that uh, prayer with fasting uh, brings uh, significant power. There's just something about it. All right, verses 5 through 12. All right, so that's the provocation. They're coming. Verse 5, then Jehoshaphat stood up in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem at the temple of the Lord in the front of the new courtyard and said, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not the God who is in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. Power and might are in your hand and no one can withstand you. O our God, did you not drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? They have lived in it and have built in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, 
If calamity comes upon us, whether the sword of judgment or plague or famine, we will stand in your presence before this temple that bears your name and will cry out to you in our distress and you will hear us and save us. But now here are men from Ammon, Moab and Mount Seir, whose territory you would not allow Israel to invade when they came up from Egypt. So they turned away from them and did not destroy them. See how they are repaying us by coming to drive us out of the possession you gave us as an inheritance. O our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power to face this vast army that is attacking us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. All right, so the second P, the prayer. So you have the provocation and the prayer. And is this ever a good one? Now, um, I like what Charles Stanley uh, wrote. He's, he wrote, fight your battles on your knees. Uh, meaning, you know, you get a lot done when you pray. It may not seem like it. And that's why a lot of people don't pray very much. Because it just seems like you're not being effective. It seems like you're wasting your time. You could be doing things. You could be returning emails, making phone calls. You could be cleaning the room that you're in at the moment. You know, you could be making that bed. You could, whatever it is, right? But uh, prayer, a lot, uh, a lot of spiritual power. You could get more done. And so let's take a closer look at the prayer because it, uh, it's beautiful. One uh, commentator, Adam Clark, a British scholar from the 1700s, said this about this prayer. It's one of the most practical, biblical, and elegant prayers in the entire Bible. Let's take a a look at it here. So number one, I I think he begins in verse six by rehearsing the facts, telling himself and everybody else the truth about the situation by acknowledging God's supreme power. So number one, he starts out, God, our God, you have no equal. Your power is matchless. You're in control. Who could stand up to you? You're our God, and we're in good hands. So number one, just being biblical in your own thinking about the situation that you're praying about. The Moabites, they have their gods and goddesses. The Edomites have their deities. The Meunites, they worship their nomadic gods, But he says, listen, you are the God of the earth. You are our God. Uh, No one can stand a chance against you. I like when I pray, when I have problems, I just like to just pray according to the scriptures to remind myself of the truth of the situation. God, I just thank you that I know that all things work together for good. I know this is working for my good somehow because I love you and I'm called according to your purpose. And I know I'm not supposed to have any anxiety about anything. But in everything, through by praying, I give this to you with thanksgiving. And I thank you for this and I thank you for that. I'm, I'm just quoting scriptures. And by the time you're done, confessing the truth of the situation from the scriptures you're praying biblically you're reminding your own soul he's reminding himself he's reminding everybody folks we're talking to god who who made heaven and earth here everybody's cowering about these guys coming but we're talking we've got a, a line to god here and it sets everybody at peace 
Sometimes when you're in trouble, one writer said, it's good to begin your prayers with all the reasons you don't need to be afraid. Remind your soul who's in control and rehearse the facts as you know them scripturally. His power is unlimited and his love is unfailing and he's promised to work everything for your good. You're his beloved and have nothing to fear. Amen? Amen. All righty. Verses 7 and 8 then. So we rehearse the facts and now we, we remember the past. He says, Lord, you've been faithful in the past with similar challenges. You drove out the adversaries and made us secure. So it's always good in your prayers and in your own uh, confrontation with trouble to remember how God has been faithful in the past. And as God has been faithful in the past, that's his guarantee that he comes through in the future. You know, um, here I raise my Ebenezer, come thou fount, right? Uh, It was written in the 1700s. Here I raise my Ebenezer, here by thy great help I've come. And usually everybody just thinks of uh, Ebenezer Scrooge, you know. <laughs> what? I raise my Ebenezer? I don't really understand that, right? So uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 7, Samuel uh, prays to the Lord to save Israel from the Philistines, which God does. And afterwards, he takes a stone and he names it Ebenezer as a memorial and he tells the Jews every time you look at that every time you look at Ebenezer stone you'll remember well Ebenezer means up until this point God has helped me that's the point because God has been my help this far God has got me this far right and so this is uh, kind of uh, what what's happening in this prayer God you you gave us this land you defeated the adversaries And we look to you again. And so it's kind of the fun part about getting older is that you get more Ebenezer stones. You know, there's less fear. I mean, I was talking to a young couple just the other night and uh, actually the husband and the husband was saying, it's been rough. We've been out of a lot of financial pressures and, uh, we're both working, just not enough. And, uh, and we're praying, God, what's going to happen? Then we got evicted. The landlord says, hey, I want my house back. It's like, what's up with that? <laughs> so now we had to find an apartment. We're not making enough money. And lo and behold, I get a brand new job with a raise. And we found a nice apartment. And we're moving in at the end of the month. And we're blessed. We're blessed with a place to stay, a new place and a new job, and a lot more money, right? Now they have an Ebenezer stone. While he was talking to me and telling me the story, I was thinking about our first year of marriage and how, you know, those things happen. And then God comes through and he teaches you. And you have your little Ebenezer stone and you just remember in your mind, you know, the next time, oh, yeah, this is no problem. God's got this, you know. And so, I mean, if you're supposed to be disciplined in your thoughts to remember these things and to apply them by faith, that the same God that uh, rescued us before is rescuing us again. And so, uh, that's awesome. So, uh, you restate the promises also. Uh, You gave this land to Abraham, your friend, our father. Love that. 
So they, he's like, Genesis 13, 15, all the land that you see, I give to you and your offspring forever. You said to Abraham, and where is offspring? So you need to keep your promise, right? So restating the promise. Now, I like that they, they, they invoke, he invokes the name of Abraham. And he says, you promised Abraham, and he's our father. Abraham's the progenitor of the Jews. They call him their father, right? So they say, he's our father. You made promises to our father. We're his kids, right? What do the Christians do? Christians go one better, right? We, 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 we go to the name of Jesus, the Lord Jesus, who is our Lord, who shed his blood for us. And we, go, we find our promises and our assurance through God the Son and what he did for us on the cross. Uh, and so that, that's just an awesome way to restate the promises in Christ. Uh, verse 9, Jehoshaphat invokes Solomon's prayer and says, uh, if disaster comes, this is what Solomon prayed at the temple, there at the same site, a hundred years before, whatever it may be, Solomon prayed, we'll stand here in your presence and cry out to you, and you'll hear and you'll save us. I like what Charles Spurgeon said about this passage. I like to plunge my hand into the promises, and then I find myself able to grasp with a grip of determination the mighty faithfulness of God. A powerful plea with God is always do as thou hast said. Do as you have promised, Lord. And so verses 10 and 11, uh, he kind of protests the injustice of it all and just requests God to intervene. And so here's what he's saying. He's saying, Lord, we did what you asked us to do and we did not annihilate them. We turned from them. And how, how crazy is this? Now they're coming after us. Is it right that the people that we showed mercy are now threatening to destroy us and take us from the land that you've promised us? This is just not right, and we pray that you would intervene. Uh, by the way, God told them to go easy on these, these people. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 25, you can check that out. And so the final thing about the prayer is he just professes utter helplessness. We have no power to face this vast army uh, that's come to attack us. We don't have a clue what to do, but our eyes are on you. You know, we say this a lot. You know, God helps those who helps themselves is just not in the Bible at all. And it's not biblical. God helps those who cannot help themselves. And this is what he's saying. We, we have no power. We're as good as dead. And our eyes are on you. Because we know if we don't get an answer from you, the answer doesn't come. And so that's just a beautiful uh, way to tell the Lord you're the only hope that we have. The fastest way to obtain God's help is to admit your own helplessness because he's glorified and your strength will be, your faith will be strengthened. And so to sum up the prayer, here it is. There's no one like you in power. You've been faithful in the past. You've made specific promises about this very thing. Uh, we're asking you to intervene. We have no power. We don't know what to do, but we're looking to you. 
verses 13 through 19. All the men of Judah with their wives and children and little ones stood there before the Lord. Then the spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, son of Zechariah, the son of Benaniah, the son of Jael, the son of Mataniah, a Levite, and a descendant of Asaph, as he stood in the assembly. He said, listen, King Jehoshaphat and all who live in Judah and Jerusalem. This is what the Lord says to you. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army, for the battle is not yours but God's. Tomorrow, march down against them. They will be climbing up by the pass of Ziz, and you will find them at the end of the gorge in the desert of Jeruel. You will not have to fight this battle. Take up your position, stand firm, and see the deliverance the Lord will give you, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Go out and face them tomorrow, and the Lord will be with you. Jehoshaphat bowed with his face to the ground, and all the people of Judah and Jerusalem fell down in worship before the Lord. Then some Levites from the Kohathites and the Korathites stood up and praised the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. All right, let's pause there. Third P, the provocation, the prayer, and the prophetic word. So here's this guy in the assembly, Jehaziel, and he speaks. Now, why are five generations given there to describe and identify this prophet who speaks? Well, that's because Israel needs to take this guy serious. Their whole, their lives depend on the accuracy of this prophecy. Who is this guy? He's not, Israel's not just listening to some guy in the audience who who says, thus says the Lord, go up, but no problems, and God's going to protect you. Oh, no. This is a guy who's well-grounded, well-known. He comes from a long line of, of godly men that everybody knows. And so when somebody has a word from the Lord like that, where there's a lot to risk that God told me to tell you kind of thing is important to know the source and the credibility and the heart and the spiritual maturity of the person. And that's why you get five names there. It's a descendant of Asaph. This is just not some visitor who happened to be in the congregation who cries out with emotion, with good intentions, but is off. They, they can take this word to the bank because it's the Lord and it comes through a trustworthy, credible uh, vessel. And so that's really the point of putting those names in there. Now the strategy is given. Uh, this is God's battle, but he still wants you involved, right? So you're going to be moving. You're not just going to stay here and pray and fast. You're going to be involved. So uh, this is God's battle, but he wants to use you. And so you're going to get moving here, but not in the traditional way. Verse 16, he's going to say, just show up, march toward them. All right. Quiet yourself, position yourself there. Stand still. Don't be afraid. And I'll do the rest. That's a lot of faith. A lot of faith. 
I don't think that you'll find another place in the Bible where such faith is called for and demonstrated. Then I started thinking about that after I wrote that down, and I started thinking, Noah to build the ark, that took a lot of faith. (laughs) And David to face Goliath with a slingshot, that took a lot of faith. Peter to get out of the boat and walk on the water. Lord, if that's you, just call me, and I'll come and walk on the water. Yeah, so never mind. There are, there are other places in the Bible. But this is a top three. Amen? So um, the response to the word, there's a worship choir, and they're praising loudly. Charles uh, Spurgeon on this praise after this word comes through a credible source, not just anybody. That's why they're so happy. They know, wow, if this guy, if Billy Graham is saying it. He's, he's like that. He's a well-known guy and a trustworthy guy. Then they all start to praise the Lord loudly. Charles Spurgeon. They worship, but why did they worship? There was no difference. There were, there, there were, they were not yet delivered. No, but they were sure they were going to be delivered. Their enemies were not dead. No, they were all alive, but they were surely going to be dead so that they had they worshiped anyway and their devotion rose from trustful and grateful hearts so faith says i'm going to live and love god and worship him and serve him in spite of what i see and feel as if god has already answered the prayer and is going to work this out and see me through that's what's going on here they're able to say let's sing even though not a thing has changed except their perspective because they have a word from the Lord. And you have a word from the Lord. You have a whole book filled with words from the Lord that you can also praise the Lord about. Here's another quote. No matter what difficulty we're facing, this word is always true. The battle isn't ours. It's always the Lord's. He owns us. He's taken full responsibility for us and our interests. So the next battle that comes your way, remember, it's actually not yours to fight, but God's to win as you cooperate with him. Amen? All right, verse 20. Early in the morning, they left for the desert of Tekoa. And as they set out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Listen to me, Judah and people of Jerusalem. Have faith in the Lord your God, and you'll be upheld. Have faith in his prophets, and you'll be successful. After consulting the people, Jehoshaphat appointed men to sing to the Lord and to praise him for the splendor of his holiness as they went out at the head of the army, saying, Give thanks to the Lord, for his love endures forever. As they began to sing and praise, the Lord set ambushes against the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir who were invading Judah and they were defeated. The men of Ammon and Moab rose up against the men of Mount Seir to destroy and annihilate them. After they finished slaughtering the men from Seir, they helped to destroy one another. When the men of Judah came to the place that overlooks the desert and looked toward the vast army, they saw only dead bodies lying on the ground. No one had escaped. All right, number four, the fourth P, the power of praise. Praise. Verse 22, 
Now you really see why I really like this story. Now, um, trusting in God and trust in the credibility of his prophets and the, the Lord is reliable and so the word we heard from Jehaziel is solid and so Jehoshaphat gets a phone call. <laughs> Jehoshaphat gets some, verse 21, gets some input from the people, right? It's only right to get some input from them. Okay, guys, how are we going to do this, all right? Because their lives are invested here. So it's, it's just not about Jehoshaphat. So he gets some insight. And so what do they say? They say, hey, let's sing our hearts out. And so, okay, what song do you want to sing? Give, th- give thanks to the Lord. His love endures forever. All right, that's a good one. We all know it. All right, so... <laughs> So the worshipers, the worship team's out front, and they're marching into battle singing. And as the praise goes up, the help comes down, and the confusion breaks out. Verse 22, the armies are thrown into panic, and they turn on one another. And they're singing and praising their way. They get to the top of some lookout the top of some plateau there, and they look out over the desert. Can you imagine that sight? Verse 24, just dead bodies everywhere. I mean, there are a lot. There are thousands. Thousands of dead bodies just laying there. Can you imagine the, the strength of their faith? Can you imagine the joy, the relief? Can you imagine the awe? Just, just looking at each other, looking. They know they didn't do anything. All they were doing was singing, give thanks to the Lord for he's good, his love endures forever. And bam, wow, that's amazing. Now, when God takes you through a harrowing experience like that, your devotion to him increases and leaps and bounds. And so just, uh, I love what one writer said, just, Praising God in the midst of our trials touches God's heart in a way that ordinary praise cannot. The heart that worships against natural inclination of fear and worry and pain and confusion yet worships anyway is a sacrifice to God which requires extraordinary faith which God often rewards in extraordinary ways. It's one thing to worship and love and serve God when everything's going good, right? Uh, But when we worship God, when all hell is breaking loose and things aren't going our way and we've got a lot of questions and uh, we worship him anyway, it really touches his heart and uh, we enjoy his blessing. Uh, Let's finish up. So Jehoshaphat and his men went to carry off the plunder And they found among them a great amount of equipment and clothing and also articles of of value, more than they could take away. There was so much plunder that it took three days to collect it. On the fourth day, they assembled in the valley of Barakah, which means place of praise, where they praised the Lord. That is why it is called the valley of Barakah to this day. Then led by Jehoshaphat, all the men of Judah and Jerusalem returned joyfully to Jerusalem. For the Lord had given them cause to rejoice over their enemies. 
they entered Jerusalem and went to the temple of the Lord with harps and lutes and, and trumpets. And the fear of God came upon all the kingdoms of the countries when they heard how the Lord had fought against the enemies of Israel. And the kingdom of Jehoshaphat was at peace, for his God had given him rest on every side. And so the very last P is the plunder. So not only did they not die, but they kind of get rich uh, also, trusting and resting and obeying. Now, extraordinary faith brings extraordinary blessing. So they kind of hit the jackpot there, uh, materially speaking. It took them three days to collect the equipment, really, and the, ba- uh, the tents and the pots and the pans and the clothing and the instruments of war and all the valuables. And they, could, they had to leave some, it says, you see. Now, how do you handle, how do you handle a problem that comes your way? How do you handle the word that a vast army or a vast problem is coming against you? How do you guys handle that? How do I handle that? Well, here's what they did. They prayed, seeking God with fasting when necessary. They had faith and obedience, believing God and his word through the scriptures. They went forward and did what he commanded. They praised and they worshiped him despite the circumstances in the face of uh, all of that trouble. It's living like you believe he's going to come through for you. <laughs> That's faith. So what did they, they reap? They were delivered from danger. They increased in material goods and resources. They had joy in their hearts. Their faith grew. There was a spiritual revival. The surrounding nations wanted to know where their armies were. So they sent people out looking. And they saw the same thing Israel saw. Just a massive devastation of all of them. The Bible says not one escaped. That word went back to all of those countries. And the fear of God fell upon them. Not only the fear of the Lord upon them. But how many of them will we meet in heaven. Because they turned to the Lord. So please remember the next time that you get word that a vast army is coming against you. Maybe that's why James says in chapter one, count it all joy. When you fall into many troubles, the word there is pressures because God can do some really mighty, wonderful things through these very challenging Uh, trials and tribulations. Amen? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this this inspiring chapter, this amazing narrative about faith, about seeing the unseen and living in right relationship, God, with you through faith. I just thank you, God, for your great and precious promises, and we ask your blessing in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand. Closing song. You have been listening to The Rock Podcast. 
Our regular services are held on Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. and Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you would like to learn more, please visit our website at calvertherock.org.